0: There's a good chance I might pick up.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's fine. But don't do it when you're like on a subway and yelling at your friend and going to get a hot dog and looking at the eight DVR.
2: There it is. Fine. Good. <laughs> <laughs> you have to block him, though. Hello, Secret
1: Movie Clubbers. Uh, we are now in the second centenary of our existence. This is Secret Movie Club Podcast 101. Today we are going to be talking about transgressive cinema and specifically a movie we showed just last week called Liquid Sky, co-written and directed by a gentleman named Slava Suckerman. Just as a warning, Liquid Sky has, in the course of when we discuss, we'll need to discuss part of its plot is that its central character is often abused, treated poorly, and outright assaulted by indifferent New York men. So we are going to discuss that. And then who knows? But when we're talking about transgressive cinema, we're certainly going to be getting into issues of of LGBTQ, of trans of pre-trans movement, John Waters, Andy Warhol, hopefully all great, great stuff. But definitely an aspect of transgressive cinema is being controversial, is shocking people. By intent, transgressive cinema is meant to shock people into conversation. So it's very likely we're going to say something shocking. Uh, Who's with us today? Hello,
3: it's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Conor cruz the People's Champion. And we forgot to record an intro for Edwin, so I'll do this.
1: Hello, America! Wow, there he is. (sighs) When they can transfer people like Black Mirror style, when they can transfer people's souls into, you know, like robots or your operating system, you have an Edwin archive.
2: They're just going to take the 200 or 100 episodes we have and they'll have Edwin. I think an AI programmed with Edwin's vernacular and general mindset will rebel against its programming it will be the reason for the downfall
1: oh like terminator style yeah and i'm craig the founder and programmer of secret movie club by the time you hear this episode we are going to embark today and tomorrow and it's selling amazingly so i'm looking at it now but we always record these a few days early we do have some tickets left it is possible that we may be sold out but we are doing all the evangelion features that started with 1.11 so evangelion fans You know full well that there was a 26-episode series followed by two movies. One was called End of Evangelion. I wanted to do those as well, but they're holding the rights right now. So what we can do are all the features that Hideyako Ano did, starting with 1.11, 2.22, 3.33. and For everyone in the know, there is a special screening after 3.33, and if you're an Evangelion fan, I'm sure you can figure it out. Katie, honey. But you guys have to get the all-access pass if you want to see that secret screening, and it's going off. We're already going to have 60 or 70 people there guaranteed both nights, so it's shaping up to be Speed Racer level enthusiasm. Come and join us Because at Secret Movie Club We always like to do Different things The following week And actually I'm going to Announce this Probably Thursday Because we're moving Our Romero Hollywood Priest Because they're actually Getting a PBS distribution deal and they want to coordinate it with the release of that, which is great, and we want to do it right for them. So next week, Wednesday and possibly Thursday, we will be doing our open mic short nights for April. That is, people showing their shorts. I'm going to show the short that I wasn't able to complete in editing, which really frustrated me, but I realized I had five hours of footage, so I had to cut it down to under 10 minutes. I will have a short. Many people will have shorts, and there'll be shorts in competition. The competition theme is animation, going along with Evangelion. We showed heavy metal, so so both those nights will be at 7.30. So come join us. As always, go to all our social media at or hashtag secret movie club. Go to our website, secretmovieclub.com. It's got everything. It's our hub. But also the hack, if you want to get tickets to any of these movies, is just follow us on Eventbrite. And if you have any questions, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Transgressive Cinema is is cinema. That deals with issues that at the time it was made, people don't want to talk about, but a certain group of people feel like they need to be talked about so that you push things that people want to keep uh, not in the mainstream. You you push them bit by bit into the mainstream to have the conversation, Uh, you know, is a really fascinating genre that we haven't gotten to yet. I think uh, what I want to do just to not botch it from the start is what is transgressive cinema? According to Wikipedia, the cinema of transgression is a term coined by Nick Zedd in 1985 to describe a New York City-based underground film movement consisting of a loose-knit group of like-minded artists using shock value and black humor in their films. Thank you. So there you go. Not that you should ever, by the way, audience, not that I take that as the final word. I always look up several sources, but I wanted to make sure I didn't say it wrong. Transgressive cinema, and we can get into it as I understand it, is a cinema that uses shocking scenes and shocking humor to sort of wake people up. I mean, it's not a technique that started in the 70s or 80s. People have been using that technique from the dawn of time. That technique's in the Bible when uh, (laughs) Noah's daughters sleep with him. Uh, And you're like, what did Noah's son, too? And you're like, did I just read that right? So there's been shocking things from the very beginning in recorded stories. But today we're talking about a movie from 1983. It turned out to be the highest grossing indie movie of its year, I found out, by a Russian immigrant named Slava Suckerman called Liquid Sky, which in the movie, that's a term they made up for heroin. And it's a very interesting film. It deals with sort of a kind of Andy Warhol factory-ish group of people there's a model and she seems very disengaged and disenchanted with the world at the beginning of the movie aliens land she lives with her lesbian singer songwriter roommate who sells drugs they go to a club the model also meets there a a man who's played by her as well And he is kind of a disaffected model as well. So you get this crazy from the beginning, twins, yin, yang thing going on, same actress playing both roles, female playing the female and female playing the male. And then throughout the movie, the female model is accosted and attacked and men just want to have sex with her. But she discovers when she has sex with them, one, she can't come to orgasm and two, she kills them. And it's tied in somehow to the alien on the roof and then there's a West German scientist who is with a Jewish woman in her apartment across the way, and he wants to help the model with the aliens, but the woman wants to order Chinese and sleep with the West German scientist. And then it all kind of comes to a head, surprisingly, in a very interestingly narrative, unifying way in the climax, which we'll talk
3: about. But what do you guys think of Liquid Sky? This was my first time seeing it. I, uh, I really liked it. Remind me of Repo Man in a lot of ways, like a feminine East Coast repo man. It's wild that this came out and wasn't an allegory for AIDS, because it was produced at the same time that the AIDS epidemic was starting and starting to ravage the New York queer population. And this feels like, like watching it, I was like, is this a metaphor for that? And I looked it up and then the timeline doesn't make sense. And I think the director said it wasn't. He said it was just a coincidence.
1: I think there are a lot of movies where it's not that people were commenting on it, but they were commenting on the vibe at the time. And certainly New York in 81, 82, 83 would have been the prologue to the AIDS epidemic of the 80s. So it, it's very, I think, arguable that he was, you know, he was making a movie about the club scene and about people being disaffected and drugs and sex and stuff, not knowing that There would be another chapter that dealt with AIDS.
3: I love that line that she has about being stepped on by men. And so she's now with women and now she's stepped on by women. That sort of duality of everybody is sort of capable of everything. Also, the Jewish woman who I believe is supposed to be the mom of the male model, right? Because isn't she in that scene Oh, are they at the dinner scene earlier? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's her. Her line Where we find out she's Jewish, where she says in a seductive way, you're from Germany, I'm Jewish, and you laugh really hard. Good stuff. The one thing I'll say, like, that kind of threw me for a loop, I like a lot of the music in it, but there's times where I was like, all right, (laughs) it sounds like old, like, 8-bit Nintendo. It's got, like, a chiptunes aesthetic. Yeah, and there's times where that, like, works, and then there's times where it's, like, really high in the mix and just happening a lot and you're like okay and the director slava suckerman who by the way
1: as long as it comes through he agreed to do a zoom interview so uh, he's in new york in 81 and we're gonna you know part of our our mission at secret movie club is creating an archive of filmmakers just talking about how they did their thing and uh, you know andrew Bujalski was kind enough to do it for us and now slava suckerman is gonna do it so just for the audience to know uh, that should we should go live with that in may it's funny you say that because he's like uh I'm trying to think who, who you know, I can think of is Robert Rodriguez and Clint Eastwood, but who are other filmmakers who do their own music? Because Slava Suckerman was also part composer. To
3: me, the, the number one example is John Carpenter. But Carpenter's stuff is similar in that it, it's very simple, but I think his stuff is like more knowingly simple and restrained in, in it. And this is a very abrasive score, a very outward, very punchy score that isn't quite, melodic enough to be as abrasive as it is at times i
0: think i dug it it was very weird it's like something andy warhol would have done it's very new york for its time and it's in the 80s it's very fashionable colorful and couldn't understand what the hell is happening but i dug it i really dug it it felt like it was going through that trend in the 80s for new york Where, you know, weird science fiction stuff happens, like Born in Flames, The Liquid Sky, and uh, The Brother from Another Planet. Kind of have that, like, independent move in these movies, which uh, I just thought of uh, while watching the movie. Like, wow, this is similar to a lot of other stuff. So, New York must have been a big trend for, like, weird sci-fi movies from their city. What do you think it was trying to say? I have no idea. I honestly don't know. All I know, there's aliens and a lot of cocaine involved and, uh, you know, trying to be, you know, hip in artist fashion. Like, yeah, it just felt like watching an Andy Warhol movie, but it's not directed by Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol is another example of
1: transgressive cinema, actually. You may know this trivia wise or not, but the original version of the movie was going to be about a woman. It was going to be called Sweet Sixteen, and she gets in a disfiguring accident at Sixteen. And her mad scientist dad gives her a robot body on her head. And Andy Warhol was going to play a flower shop owner who just sold artificial flowers and talked about how all things artificial are better than all things real. And then they changed everything up and Warhol wasn't in it. It
3: Sounds like a completely different movie.
1: Totally. But it's funny that Edwin called out Warhol because Warhol was weird trivia, bit involved with Slava Suckerman and was going to get involved in the movie. And a lot of people... I think at that time loved to work with Andy Warhol because of the way he was able to make the transgressive mainstream. So that's a really good call. What do you think they were saying about her or the fact that she played both a her and a him?
0: Yeah, yeah, I I, I caught that. It kind of confused me for a bit. Like, is this a guy or a chick? But after going into the movie, like, this is actually a chick that's playing a dude. So that's pretty cool. I like that. I don't know. She, she really loves some cocaine. <laughs> like, that's what I got out of it. I, I feel like. That was the original tagline liquid sky she really loves her some cocaine and heroin
3: too well she loves cocaine with only heroin in sight she doesn't care for heroin as much it seems like
1: <laughs> I wonder if that was some kind of weird statement of like look we don't do heroin yeah. that's a bad drug <laughs> I'm gonna now bump three rails over here
3: to be fair as someone who's neither done cocaine or heroin I would probably rank cocaine as being less bad than heroin I
1: am in the same boat I've never done cocaine or heroin and I would I'd agree but I would tell you I've been, I don't know if you were Connor, but I've been around a lot of people on Coke because of film school and parties. And I think I've told this story before, but my biggest memory of like trying to explain to people what it's like not being on cocaine with people who are on cocaine is I was at a party in the Hollywood Hills. It's very stereotypical. And I opened a door, a mirror had been taken, a body length mirror had been taken down off the wall and there were just like lines of Coke on it. And I was like, oh, not for me. So I go back out. They had put on a Herzog movie with little people, I think called Only Little People Started Small, and they had it on loop, and everybody was watching it at this party. Then this woman I knew, who I actually dated briefly a little later for just a week, but she came up, we weren't dating at the time. She came up to me. She looked at me with these just like wild eyes. I hadn't said anything. I just had a solo cup in my hand. I was like 20. And she's like, you and me, were the only real... People here right now. Like everything you've said, everything you've said. I'm like there with you. I am there with you, and I hadn't said anything. (laughs) I was looking at her, and I had my Solo Cup, and she's like, "Look, right now, you and me, right now."
2: Okay, I'll see you later. I gotta go. I gotta go back to that room. I was like, "Wow, (laughs) (laughs) cocaine. That's a hell of a drug." I had never seen it, and. I was a big fan. I watched a new, like, it's like a 2017 restoration of it. And I sort of feel like this... It must be very weird to see that because I kind of feel like it belongs on a VHS. It's got this aesthetic in its low budget that sort of screams for that type of um, aesthetic for it. And I think that's my favorite thing about this thing was the aesthetics, costume designs and the neon lighting and just the amount of details thrown. They really made the most of what you could tell was a very minimal budget. You can feel the low budget, but I think they make up for it by, weirdly, I think the shot composition paired with the art design makes it feel bigger than its constraints, Don't always feel that in the acting. The acting's incredibly wooden, but I think it works for what they establish is like the way that this is. I mean, the plot of the movie is an alien comes to Earth to search for heroin was sort of my intake from it in terms of trying to give it like a one sentence log line. But gets a bigger high from sucking out her endorphins. (laughs) (laughs) Endorphins. (laughs) She sleeps with her. Some of the lines in the movie are pretty incredible. I wrote... I've done more Quaaludes than you have aspirin. They don't excite me. I wrote, <laughs> um, this pussy has teeth. <laughs> My favorite line delivery was want to snort some cocaine just to the most casual. Some really incredible stuff. But I thought it was cool. I was I was trying to think in terms of how it pairs with the transgressive cinema that I've seen. The low budget aesthetic works because it's sort of about the decay of 80s New York to a degree, especially within like this art community that you're sort of focused in. And it has this pretension to it that is sometimes a negative of people making stuff about the space that they're kind of involved in. But the fact that it's... So he's a Russian immigrant?
1: He is, yeah. And he and his wife, both Russian immigrants, and the wife was the one who started the story. And Anna Carlisle, the lead actor who plays both the female and male model, the script has a co written by Slava Zuckerman, his wife and Anna Carlisle.
2: It feels like this Kind of amalgamation of these different cultures combining, especially someone coming into New York into this art scene. At least from the stuff that I've seen in documentaries and people's experiences of it, which makes it really interesting. I think this feels a lot like a uh, soap opera, and I think that's within the acting and the way it moves. Like it's two hours, but I didn't feel overly long to me, which is interesting because it's not considered really with
3: plot or character. Very limited locations,
2: but it just it has such a vibe that kind of sucks you in. I would imagine this is probably an experience that could be elevated. With the assistance of the products advertised. Getting mysterious. I do know what you mean by the
3: acting. I think the one that made me kind of laugh sometimes was the girlfriend kind of had this like, I'm a bad person and I'm doing (laughs) bad things. But it works. (laughs) And Yeah, it was fun.
2: It's about all of the sort of weirdos of the art world, specifically in the 80s. And in using that with its transgressive roots, like nothing is sacred and that like kind of weird fever dream that plays into conversations about gender and some like really alarming conversations about assault and like the way that these men use women and vice versa are really interesting because it kind of puts everything on you're going to experience this and the conversations come after, which I guess is the entire goal, which we'll get into but it, it paints a, like a moral picture that you try to come to terms with, but it never speaks to it clearly. It just sort of lets everything happen. And within that, you have to decide where you stand and how you're going to your orgasm death.
1: <laughs> the backstory was that Slava Suckerman and his wife, and then the DP was also Russian. They all immigrated to New York. And Suckerman actually felt he couldn't make a movie right away because he didn't feel like he understood the city. And he didn't want to make, and I think this speaks to his intelligence, he didn't want to make a movie where he pretended like he understood the city when he was just seeing it as a Russian. And he said that actually for him, he just felt so naive having grown up in Soviet Russia at the time, like just seeing what people were doing in New York. So He waited about five, six, seven years. They got the funding, yada, yada. I really loved it. And I think it has a lot going on. Like, you have an inside, which is Anna Carlisle. She's clearly New York on the inside New York scene. And an outside, which is the writer, director, are Russian. And you can see that. And even in the characters, you can see Anna Carlisle plays the two models. But then they also have that West German character who's like always observing. And he like wants to help, but he doesn't really And you feel like maybe that's a stand in for Suckerman uh, and his wife. I also was very impressed for somebody who's smoked some pot, but not a lot. And then, you know, I have a cigarette every now and then, and you know, a drink every now and then and coffee every day. And by the way, no judgment, but certainly not somebody who ever, you know, no cocaine, no heroin. And the movie very much traffics in people doing cocaine and heroin. What I was interested in is it doesn't portray it glamorously at all. In fact, all the people who are addicted to heroin or coke or selling it, you can tell that the lead character is sort of put off by it. And they feel like they're users. You can see the people who don't use it, like, want to have parties. They want to do art. They want to do things. And then the people who do use it, they just kind of get obsessed with just scoring. I thought that must have come out of experience for artists, seeing people who suddenly the drug is what they're about more than the art. And that was interesting to see that honest statement, too. And then I was really impressed. As you guys were saying, it definitely seemed to at least partially come from a female perspective because the sex scenes, the assault scenes, you were just like, these guys were all about themselves, were narcissistic, were not listening to her at all, had no interest in what her needs were what she wanted. And then she gets agency when she realizes that she can kill people when they have sex. And so then the tables turn and she starts killing people intentionally because they don't care about her. So she turns their userness and their sex. And so there was like an interesting turn and then, finally, her orgasm is like connecting with the aliens.
3: It's like a rape-revenge movie where the actions of the rape and revenge are the same.
1: Yeah, she turns the tables. She takes the assault, and then she turns sexual assault into an agency for her. So there's—I don't know Anna Carlisle's backstory, but you would have to imagine that either she was around it or experienced it. And you definitely get at that time—and still, to this day, I mean, you can imagine a cent—I mean, well, century— <laughs> 10,000 years of people in power Using drugs and sex As the gateways To what you think you want And what you have to put up with And then I guess the last thing I want to say Talking about it's low budget Everybody in the theater Minds were blown Every time they cut to that early 80s Like digital animation Where you would see like an egg And then body heat And you'd hear like Every time someone died And everyone was like Whoa
3: Those effects were cool. I liked the like stop motion when people would die and they'd like turn into weird little uh, crystalline shapes (laughs) and dissolve. And I like that weird sound effect that zoom kind of uh sound effect they had a lot
1: weirdly a movie that this is a lot like although in a different way is have you guys seen under the skin Mm -hmm. jonathan glazer scarlett johansson she's an alien and she lures men to have sex but in that movie men are getting harvested for meat
0: john waters just exploded when he did um female trouble Multimaniacs, Pink Flamingo is a big one. Yeah, you just like, no, what? screw it, I'm I'm going to do what I want. And that's how we got Divine, and that's how she became what she is. Probably the most famous uh, trans, uh, uh, actually, no. no, that's not the right turn.
3: More like a drag queen. One of
0: the best drag queens ever.
1: But what would that, man, that's a really good question. What would Divine want to be
3: called? I think Divine is the, like, stage name of the female drag persona. I think he is actually just identifies as himself.
1: I mean, it's a really great question because Divine is pre the current trans moment, but Divine was so inspiring to a lot of people.
3: Yeah, it would have been before we even, I think people broadly were using the term transsexual as opposed to transgender back then. I did the Google. What is transgressive? Involving a violation of accepted or imposed boundaries, especially those of social acceptability. It's interesting because... For most of human, well, at least the way that uh, we're we're taught in Western civilization, we're taught that for most of human history until about 150 years ago, 100 years ago, if that, basically men ruled and women drooled and men could be like hey i'm the superior one this stuff that's being depicted as negative in here you know hundreds of years ago wouldn't have been viewed as a negative conceivably again i think part of that i think there's definitely like i think there are societies where this wasn't the case and i think that a weird byproduct of like the Western society and patriarchy and stuff is the way we've rewritten history. So that lay, like, it's always been kind of like that. Even though I think there's tons of societies, it's it's like things with like multiple genders. Like there's tons of history of like societies where there wasn't just two genders. And now there's a lot of people who like to be like, well, technically it's always been like that. And it's like, well, has it? But it's interesting because what is viewed as transgressive Eventually, you know, changes over over the years, and I was thinking a little bit about Bound while watching this a little bit too. Where Bound isn't quite as transgressive in its actual depictions, but in the sense that it's kind of like a be gay do crime movie, and the sort of embracing of that identity of like, well, you don't like you're gonna view queer people as being violent regardless, because you're going to view them as being a violent intrusion into your space. So we're going to steal all your money and we're just going to be violent anyways.
2: From my limited experience with it, I think it's such an interesting thing because I think shock value is like the clickbait aspect of transgressive cinema that sort of piques your attention. But I think the way that so many of these utilize their shock factor with their storytelling to poke at taboos and different things or what make them so unique and why they become these kind of cult things that are so widely regarded and bring out big audiences when you when you screen them because I think
3: there's nothing like them and get people killed something that I was looking up is Pasolini who made among other things Sallow, which is a very transgressive film but it's a transgressive film that's specifically about fascism and Pasolini was then murdered not long after, I think, while being yelled at for being a, like a dirty communist or something. Weren't you saying about the Ukrainian movie that the guy got locked up or something? Or He did.
1: Yeah, it's slightly different. The short story is that Sergei Parandrov made two movies, both of which are considered classics of world cinema, Shadows of Our Forgotten Ancestors and The Color of Pomegranates. And there was a house style in the Soviet Union known as Soviet Realism. And again, I want to be very careful here because don't be throwing stones when you live in glass houses. The Soviet system also, in fairness, had amazing literacy rates. The Soviet system was big on education. The Soviet system was big on truly trying to lift people up. I don't want to just come off as like a knee-jerk reactionary. But something the uh, Soviet system sucked at Was artistic expression because it believed, as often totalitarian and fascist governments believe, that if you allow too much freedom to artists, you're just going to have to deal with a bunch of people riling people up. Tricky ideas. What ends up happening is any artists that are viewed as subversive ultimately get jailed or killed. So, in the case of Sergei Parandrov, his movies were not Soviet realist at all. In fact, they were very individualist, they had a very flamboyant, wild style, and he was Ukrainian as well, which I'm sure also unsettled the Soviet authorities in Russia, who every hundred years, as we're dealing with right now, go to war with Ukraine. So eventually he was jailed for 12 years and he got into making miniatures of all things. And he ended up when he got out of prison, just focusing on miniatures because he just didn't want to deal with, you know, going to prison again. But that's the story
2: there's been a lot of discussions like the last few years about subverting expectations, which I think transgressive cinema is very much about. And people have sort of villainize the word subverting as if trying to change how an audience takes in a piece of art is negative as if they're trying to get a gotcha on you. But I think most everything we talk about today exists in this pantheon of not falling into that trap. The one I was going to bring up, one of my favorites that I had seen was Tetsuo the Iron Man, which when you explain it from like a plot level, it's about a man who considers himself a metal fetishist. It honestly feels very similar if you saw Teton They have a a similar vibe, but he basically, this guy's kind of going mad because maggots are infesting a self-inflicted wound because he keeps putting metal into his flesh. And then he's run over by a businessman and his girlfriend and they get rid of his body and the businessman starts to be haunted by this thing and starts to transform his flesh. You describe that and like what- You can hear
1: Connor's mom saying, no, thank
2: you. Yeah, and I- (laughs) But also just trying to understand what an experience like that is trying to do as art, I think is what makes transgressive cinema so interesting because it is this experience that you know you have stuff like Salo where people are like, well, have you have you seen Salo? Like as if it's like a rite of passage. But I think it's such an interesting thing to sit through anything in this realm because it really challenges everything we associate with like normal movie watching in really interesting, can be really interesting ways. I'm sure some of them are awful.
1: Well, I think you brought up, Daniel, a great point, which is that I think an aspect of transgressive cinema is challenging norms. And that is in a way antithetical to how some people understand and experience film. They understand and want film to be the opposite of challenging. They want it to be a palliative, which is also totally, like, my life is so rough. I just want two hours of humor, of like joy, of comfort. of I got to get out of the dark and get into the light because I got so much dark in my life, whether it's disease or depression or whatever. And so then to put on a movie
2: that's like forcing you into challenging stuff, you're like, this isn't what I want. People that think art has to be taken in one way, there's only one type of right thing, or you don't watch a type, a certain type of movie is a negative thing. I think it has to. You have to find your personal taste and go with it. I mean, challenging, I think, is good. But at a certain point, like you said, you can't be in certain mental states and then expose yourself to things that will- Are not healthy. Yeah, or they're maybe even not healthy.
3: There's a reason why Shang-Chi did better than The Last Duel last year. Yeah.
2: Right. (laughs) Well, it always comes down to people, like people aren't seeing the good movies. Like people are seeing them and maybe there's conversations about advertising or whatever. Popular movies are popular for a lot of reasons, but there's also, there's a vibe people want. When the world's in a certain state, there's a thing that you sometimes without knowing it push toward or you kind of crave and having to explain that to people is is silly to me.
1: I was going to talk about one of my favorite filmmakers, Takashi Miike, who we've talked about, a Japanese filmmaker still working today, sort of today's Fassbinder, although he's different, but you know, making two or three movies a year, although he has outlived Fassbinder by several decades. So now he's made 120 30 movies. And Miike has said, you know, he just takes whatever's thrown at him. He he doesn't really necessarily have an agenda, which is I think his strength. So he has so many movies that go in so many places. But he made a movie called Visitor Q, which I know I've talked about before, which is one of my favorite films. You know, we were talking about nominating new canon. That's another one I would nominate new canon. And that one deals with taboo after taboo. First scene, a dad sleeps with his daughter. Second scene, a mother addicted to heroin is beaten by her son. Third scene, a handsome stranger bludgeons them with rocks fourth scene he like comforts the mother by lactating her milk next scene the dad kills a woman and sleeps with the dead body and you're sitting there and you're like what is this movie? But the funny thing is, it's so infused with the humor that I stuck with it because I also love him and I I loved how out there it was and it was made well. And at the end, it does this weird miracle of affirming family. So I think the thing about transgressive cinema I wanted to say is that I think that successful transgressive cinema is trying to get at something, which is why I think you know it when you see it. And you're like, "Ah, that's a great movie, like Liquid Sky. But I think when you see a film that's shocking you just to shock you, you also know it. You're like, ah, and you can tell they're like, what are they getting at here? They just think they're being really daring. But it's not getting at any kind of emotional, subterranean or spiritual or moral or ethical or, hey, you guys need to look at this group of people differently. So I think it's weird when you see a Tetsuo or a Visitor Q or a Liquid Sky and you're like, wow, this movie is crazy, but it's really getting at something. And the one I think we can't get away from, Daniel, that you brought up is Teton. Teton in 2021 was the movie everybody was talking about, love it or hate it. The writer-director, she had made a movie that had made a splash Her debut was a movie called Raw about a vegetarian uh, medical student who becomes a cannibal. And I have not seen that one yet, but... um, in Teton, the first 30 minutes, I was like, I'm going to get through this because everyone's talking about it. But I wanted to turn it off. I was like, what is going on? She sleeps with a car and then suddenly she kills a dude and then she kills six people. I was just like, what is her? Then she kills her parents. <laughs> i like, what like, what is going on with this? But then she meets this steroid addicted fire chief. Who has lost his son and to hide from everybody because she's on the run. She pretends to be his son. And then it becomes about damaged people and marginal people finding each other and creating family. And then it got better and better and better. And I was so glad I stuck with it to the end because it's also very female POV. I mean, I was like, this is not a movie made by a man. You could tell that from the very beginning. And by the end, I was really grateful to have been forced to not find anything titillating, to be unsettled, to then be sitting and be like, well, what is sexuality? You know, what is gender? You know, who gets to tell people what is acceptable and what's not acceptable? Not that serial killing is ever acceptable, but I understood at the end of the movie that it was a construct of the film. I
2: was a big Teton fan. It was the last thing I saw before I got COVID, so I, I associate it with that. My favorite thing about it, though, is, is within that, there's the camp of love and hate, but all the conversation around that's so interesting. Sometimes you get in conversations where a movie gets a lot of hype and then sort of gets the two camps of people in that regard. And it's like these very aggressive things that people have really interesting takes on both things of why it really affected them and why they thought it was its own thing. And I think that divide is really cool. I think that's a sign of a a really interesting release when it's not just a very heated personal thing and more of like, oh, I love this because it did this to me, which is always interesting in the capacity of something where the subject matter is that when you're like, oh, this character spoke to this experience even though they're a serial killer
1: i think i would put forth that another aspect of successful transgressive cinema is the conversation it sparks so if you're just like that was awful or whatever maybe it's not so successful but if you sit here like we have talking for an hour
3: about it maybe it's successful pop culture final thoughts well much much like how you have to take time from your family craig to indulge in your true passion to cinema. I have to take time from cinema to indulge in my true passion, which is everything else. And in that, I have lately been playing through some of the Resident Evil games I've never played. Despite it being my uh, favorite franchise of games and the fourth being my favorite, played through Resident Evil Zero, which I was okay. I would not recommend if you're a Resident Evil newbie. Do not play that one. The inventory system sucks and it's annoying. But I also played through the recent remake of Resident Evil 2 from 2018, and that game rules. And I would recommend if you're a Resident Evil newbie, that would be a very good place to start. They're remaking video games. Well, they've been doing it for a while. And when they do a remake of a video game, it's like a completely new, you know, they take the old thing and they update it, which for video games is almost even better just because video games such a tactile aspect to them that like controls get better, especially over the last like 15 years. Weirdly, they remade the first Resident Evil in 2002. The first three Resident Evils came out in the late 90s. And then they didn't remake Resident Evil two and three until like a couple years ago. They've almost lapped themselves. At this point, they would need to remake the original remake of the first one. In terms of the timeline of their games. With
2: the control scheme
3: of the two and threes. If people don't know, Resident Evil is like the biggest video game horror franchise. It's uh, basically a zombie thing. It's it's a zombie thing. It's a little more complicated than that. And that's what's kind of fun. Because there's also like weird monster men and stuff. Resident Evil 2 remake from 2018 great game. It is dope. You can find me at twitch.tv slash Cruz and watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings at twitch.tv slash nerdhalla.
2: Game remakes are so interesting because a lot of times you have like the source code of the original things so they can build off of these things. There's two different terms. A remasters are sort of just kind of polishing the original and then a remake is sometimes a complete rebuild using the story or some of the gameplay aesthetics of the thing. So you sort of still have the original piece though because especially video games are becoming inherently digital things. There's this weird, like, the archiving of old games is, like, an issue of access, you know, similar to the early era of film. So I'm curious to see sort of how they deal with that, where you get remakes, but you sometimes want this old thing, and your access to it being limited to a console that now costs hundreds of dollars is odd and A little bit concerning.
3: Legal access to old video games is an issue. However, there are a lot of very nice people online who've made it their uh, life's work to catalog a lot of these old games, which is a good thing. I think is a net positive.
2: I went to the cinema and I saw Michael Bay's new film Ambulance, and I went to go see everything everywhere all at once again. Still Phenomenal! An ambulance kind of ruled. Michael Bay in his sweet spot. Someone said it was an episode of Grey's Anatomy for the boys. <laughs> and his new thing—I haven't seen maybe his last movie or two—but his new thing, I, I think, is drone footage. And I watched an interview with him where there was a YouTuber that he liked. He was 19 years old, and he hired him to do the drone footage. And boy, oh boy, do they use that drone footage! It's just shots of LA where a drone's going up a building for no reason, and then we'll do a 180 down the building, into the car chase that's happening. It's really beautiful. It was. It's a really good time. I had a really good time with it. I've
1: seen some TikToks with crazy drone stuff where like the drone will go into a parking lot and then it'll go in a window and it'll go into a bowling alley and then it'll go into the, like I don't know if you've seen any of those things, that will pop out of the bowling alley. I
2: think Michael Bay must be on TikTok and utilize that because it's a lot of that. And there's just great shots. Like there's a bullet hole in the back of the ambulance and he keeps using that as like a transition. So he'll like, there's a car chase and the camera zooms in through the bullet hole, and then you're back in the ambulance. Just over and over and over. I'm obsessed with how the vibe of the scene is more important than any attempt at continuity. And it works. Like it doesn't make sense. The geography doesn't make sense, but it's dope. I deducted a half star because one time when we were doing um, summer movies at the Million Dollar Theater on Saturday mornings, I was late because I got held up by a PA as they were shooting this movie downtown. So. <laughs>
0: what a great time for movies for me. I've been on a crazy run. I saw Kill Bill for the first time on 35. It was beautiful until everyone booed when the wine scene, uh, thing came up. So that was pretty fun.
3: I'm okay with that.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm okay with that too. <laughs> when Sonny Trouble's character uh, brings out the sword and uh, when he says a line... When you encounter God in your journey, God will be cut. Love that line. I don't care what you say, Craig. It's probably the best thing he's ever written for that movie, for that particular moment.
2: Craig notoriously hates that line.
0: Well, what's funny is Edwin's tried to bait
1: me five times now. You texted me, you tried to bait me on the phone, and now you're trying to bait me in the podcast. And what have I said every single time you brought this up? That line is amazing. I don't, I don't know what's your, what's your Edwin, deal with that. Edwin, just... be an honest broker. What did I tell you the last time? I said that
0: was one of the most memorable lines of the movie, for sure. No, I yeah, yes, yes, that's, that's what you said. I remember now. That. And that's all I said. Uh, and, I, and I did the Mad Max marathon, which was awesome. Only did one and two. And I went straight to Los Feliz to watch Saturday Night Fever, which was beautiful. Packed house, man. And then I left because I was so tired. But uh, I enjoyed what I saw on 35 for Saturday Night Fever on a beautiful print, buddy. Edwin Edwin one. What did I do to make you treat me so
1: disrespectfully? I had a bunch of dreams. My family and I took a small vacation because the next patch is going to be real intense. And we went to Sedona, Arizona, and then to Monument Valley, actually talking about John Ford. But they say that in Sedona, there are energy vortexes, and they tell you to go on certain hikes. And the energy vortexes, maybe it was just the power of persuasion. But the first night I was there, I just felt like I was in a stream, like a Russian stream, I had a dream. And I woke up and I felt very weird. And I was like, it didn't feel good or bad. I felt that you could either be energized by it, like it could go good or bad. I realized it was neutral in the dream. And then the second night, I had a dream where David Lynch told me that he was going to teach my kids how to make movies, which was kind of awesome. And then I had a dream where Steven Spielberg had made this movie, And I was talking to Martin Scorsese about it, and I was telling Scorsese how I was grateful that Spielberg had put himself in it and had been honest about his feelings about some of his family members. So I feel it must have been kind of some, like, projection of what The Fablemans is going to be. I dream a lot. I'm always going to this dream world. I've just mapped out more and more this dream world. And there's this part now where Martin Scorsese and Spielberg are. And Spielberg has this two-story Adobe house that's right outside of this dreamlike Universal Studios or City Walk, And I often don't get to see him. In a lot of the dreams, I just am sort of meandering around there and they're shooting like the next Indiana Jones movie or whatever. I had a dream a while ago where they finally hired me to shoot second unit for Spielberg. And it was uh, like the second unit and they were getting this actor ready and I was just coming on to the set. And then Spielberg opened the door and he smiled. It was like one of the first times I got to hang out with him. He was going to give me the storyboards and then I woke up. Very nerdy dreams. I think in the end, let's just let's just admit, very nerdy dreams. <laughs> the Secret Movie Club Podcast 102 is going to be about spiritual, agnostic, atheist, and other designations. I might not even be secular, scientific, uh, whatever you want to say. But basically movies that look at one of the biggest issues that still everyone deals with, which is, do they believe in a transcendent level of the universe? Do they not? How do they define that? Do they believe in God? What does God mean when they use that word? Do they reject that? Do they feel it's very destructive? Do they just don't know? So they make a movie, I just don't know. We will talk about movies like Lars von Trier's Breaking the Ways or Brayson's Al-Hazard Balthazar. We'll talk about the Coen brothers, A Serious Man, and No Country Full Men, possibly, 2001 a lot of stuff so that's next week as always this episode was edited by chief creative content officer Connor Lloyd-Cruz you can find out everything we do at our Eventbrite Secret Movie Club or just at our website our hub secretmovieclub.com write us at community at secretmovieclub.com if you have questions have a good week I'll talk to you soon Love you. bye bye